Well, good evening. My name is Stephen, and I'm the young adult pastor here. And it's great to see everybody. Well, thank you for that warm welcome. It's great to see everybody, but especially if you're new here, we are so glad that you're here this evening. My wife and I will celebrate our fifth anniversary here in September. We made it that far against a lot of the odds on, on staff. Pastor Jim told us just we're, we got odds that you'll make it five years. He was joking, but um, we're just trying to get to Pastor Duke's status of 40 years with his wife, Kathy, 40 plus years. But when we first got married, um, before we were married, we were kind of looking at where we could move to, praying about it. And I'll never forget, we were sitting in my car. And we were just asking God, God, where would you have us move to? And I took out a blank sheet of paper. I gave my wife a blank sheet of paper. And we knew we wanted to be somewhere between where she worked and rest and where I worked here. And so we just asked God, God, where would you want us to move? We want our home to be a place where your kingdom is advanced. We want people to encounter you. We want to have people over after church. And so we said, okay, I told my wife, let's just take a moment. Let's pray. And you write down what you think God says. I'll write down what I think he says, and we'll compare notes. So I got, I felt like the spirit of God was saying that one word, Herndon, Virginia. Well, those two words, but Herndon. <laughs> and she wrote down on her piece of paper, Eldon Street and Worldgate. So we didn't know what, what that was or kind of, but we looked up the intersection of Eldon and Worldgate. And sure enough, it was in Herndon. So that was the sign of God that we needed to look in that area. We started looking and, you know, we called different people. We called this landlord who had a home right in that location. And he said, yes, I, my home is available for rent, um, but I do have to warn you, I have a tenant right now who I'm in the process of, of evicting, and I don't know when that process is going to be over. But we really felt like we had a word from God. This was the home. So we actually made plans to move in the home without seeing the inside of the home, which was, in retrospect, not really faith as much as it was stupidity. <laughs> um, but we got married. We went off, went off on our honeymoon, and we went to Lake Tahoe. We were visiting a church in California on Sunday, on a Sunday, and this woman turned around during the meet and greet time, and she said, I have a word of God for you. You've been waiting on an open door, and God has opened that door. And as soon as we walked out, I remember we were, I was in the lobby of the church. I got a phone call. It was from this landlord and said, the, the woman has moved out. The home is yours. So we got back from our honeymoon and we walk into this home, our, our new home. And it was, it was amazing. I mean, the whole home was maybe 970 square feet. I mean, it was tiny. But for us, like, it was a mansion. The carpets were new. There was a backsplash in the kitchen. I mean, we thought that God had met us. This was our dream for the next, you know, three, four, five years we we're going to live in this home. And everything went really well for the first two years. And then one night, I went to get a snack late at night. And all of a sudden, I heard this, like, scratching noise. And I turned on the light, and underneath the refrigerator, this mouse is staring at me. Now, I don't know if mice can, be, can have demons, but I'm pretty sure this mouse had a demon. I didn't think too much of it, but, but my wife told me when we got married, before we got married, she said, Stephen, 
I'll go, I'll do whatever you want me, want me to do. I'll go wherever you want me to go. But there's just two things I want you to know. I don't do roaches and I don't do mice. <laughs> Let's just say I started praying and fasting in that moment. And little did I know that a home, a couple homes down, we lived in a, a string of, of townhomes, was infested with mice. And that infestation would spread to our whole complex. And for three months, we had pest control coming to our home three or four times a week to rid us of our mice problem. And I remember one night, it got so bad, we actually had to get, uh, go to a hotel just for the night. And we're sitting there, I'm crying, my wife's crying. And the only word I can describe to sum up how we were feeling in that moment was disappointment. Disappointment because we had felt like God had led us to this place, and now the very place that he had led us was mice infested. And I'm sure in a room like this, there's many of you all who are disappointed in something. Maybe you're going through a season of disappointment. I've talked to some of you who are disappointed because of the season of life you're in. Maybe you envisioned being married or having kids at this moment of your life, and that dream hasn't happened yet. Maybe you've been disappointed in this job that you prayed for and believed God for, and then you got it and realized it wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. Maybe you've been disappointed in a dream God gave you to start a business, and a couple years later from that dream, the business hasn't gotten off the ground, and you're wondering where is God in the dream that he gave you. Maybe you're disappointed in where you're at. And tonight I want to talk to you about dealing with disappointment. Dealing with disappointment. And we're going to look at kind of an unusual book. It's a book that most of us skip, or in our Bible reading plans, we give up the reading plan when we get to the book of Ezekiel. Okay, Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1. We're just going to read one verse tonight, and I'm going to give you a couple of highlights from uh, the life of Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1. Let's pray. Father, we come to you tonight asking for your grace, asking you to open our ears. Lord, for those of us who are disappointed, I pray that you would encourage us, that you'd give us perspective, and you'd reveal more of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Chabar Canal, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. The book of Ezekiel opens up with Ezekiel saying, in the 30th year. What 30th year? Well, the, the year 30, the age of 30, was a very significant year for men during biblical times. The age of 30 is when Joseph ascended to second in command over all of Egypt. The age of 30 was the age that David became king. The age of 30 is when priests would enter into their role as a priest. They would serve from the age of 30 until the age of 50. The age of 30 was when John the Baptist started his ministry. The age of 30 was the age that Jesus started his ministry. The age of 30 is symbolic for a time where a man in the Bible would enter into his calling or the fullness of his purpose. And so here Ezekiel is in the 30th year of his life. And Ezekiel was a priest. 
He had spent the entirety of his life up to that point studying to be a priest. And that studying was no light thing. In fact, Jewish boys who were of this tribe who would become priests would devote their lives to studying what's called the Torah or the first five books of our Bible today. They would study these books because they recognized that to serve God was not a small task. They gave themselves to memorizing these books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They would memorize those as kids. All because they knew of the weight of their calling. In fact, if you read those five books, you'll see stories of men who served as priests who were perhaps a little too casual with their service. For instance, the high priest Aaron had two sons named Nadab and Abihu. All of you considering baby names, I would suggest to avoid these two. <laughs> Nadab and Abihu got a little too comfortable in their service to God. They offered up unauthorized fire or strange fire to God, and instantly they were killed. These Jewish boys, like Ezekiel, would read these stories and with fear and trembling recognize the severity of their calling, that they had to pour their life into preparing for this moment when they would turn 30 and they would serve the house of God. And in the very year that Ezekiel should have become a priest, should have began to walk in the calling of his life, he says, I was among the exiles by the Chabar Canal. Now, most of us aren't ancient Near East geography historians. I mean, we may not know where that is. I certainly didn't before I read this passage. But that's actually in a place called Babylon. And what Ezekiel is describing is the fact that he was taken into captivity in the empire of Babylon. That there was this wicked king of his nation, Judah, named Manasseh, who was so wicked, he sacrificed the children to his false god and led the people into wholesale idolatry. And God, even though he's long-suffering and he's patient, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. And through the prophet Jeremiah, he prophesied that the nation of Judah would be in captivity for 70 years because of Manasseh's sin. And over the course of time, there were three waves of exile. The first wave was four people you probably know, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were taken from Jerusalem, and they were taken into captivity in Babylon. The second wave, a couple years later, after the king of Judah, Jehoiachin, had rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, the second wave of captivity happened. And all Jehoiachin, the king, all of the royal palace, including Ezekiel. Ezekiel was one of the high-ranking people. He was a priest. He was a, a notable figure, so he was taken into captivity. And here Ezekiel is in a foreign land far from where God supposedly would manifest his presence. What does a priest do in captivity? What does a priest do thousands of miles from the temple, thousands of miles from Jerusalem? Maybe you're here today thinking, God, there's no way that you could show up at this God-forsaken job. Or God, where are you in my marriage that's in shambles? Or God, how am I supposed to worship you when I had this vision that I thought was from you and it hasn't come to fruition in my life? In the middle of Ezekiel's disappointment, in the 30th year when he was ready to step into the calling of God on his life, 
Now, we don't know how Ezekiel felt, but I can imagine he was pretty disappointed. And in his disappointment, it says that the heavens were opened. And Ezekiel says, I saw visions of God. Your disappointment is an invitation to see more of God. God is willing to initially disappoint you and me in order to open up a portal into heaven, in order for us to see him more clearly, to see a bigger, a bigger version, a more accurate version of who he is. Don't miss what he's trying to show you in your disappointment of who he is because you're so consumed on the circumstances and the natural things in your life. The end of Ezekiel chapter 1, or the majority of the chapter, Ezekiel gets this vision of God. And it's a bizarre vision. I mean, how do you describe a heavenly vision of God who's indescribable with words that we as humans can understand? I mean, he's trying as hard as he can to depict the vision that he has. He's using a lot of metaphors, a lot of likes, a lot of as's, because he's trying to give language to the glory, to the majesty that he sees. And he says that a stormy wind came out of the north, a great cloud with brightness around it, fire flashing forth continually, gleaming metal within the fire. And then he sees these four living creatures. And each of these creatures have four faces, or something like four faces. And each of these creatures have four wings, two to cover their body, two to cover their faces. Two of their wings that cover their body extend out to touch each other. And beside each of these four creatures is a wheel. And over the expanse, above the living creatures, above the, the wheel and the living creatures, is a throne. A throne of sapphire. And on this throne, Ezekiel's trying to use the best language he can come up with. On this throne is a likeness with a human appearance. Not a human, but something that is like a human. Above this human-like figure, above the waist, was gleaming metal like fire. And below something like a waist was fire with brightness. Now, if that confuses you or that seems far-fetched, let me tell you, it's not easy to describe a heavenly vision. What was God showing Ezekiel? In this vision. Now, it's beyond this time that we have together, and frankly, beyond my knowledge, to break down what these wings are and all these, these various parts of this vision. But I just want to point out one small detail to you that would have particular importance to Ezekiel. This throne of God had wheels. Now, that may not seem too important to you and I. But during Ezekiel's time, when people thought of a deity, when they thought of their God, they thought of their God as localized. There's a God of Israel. There's a God or gods of Egypt. There's gods of Babylon. There's gods of Assyria. And those gods are, are powerful in that locality. But if you move beyond that locality, those gods are not powerful because there's a God that serves that area. This throne has wheels. 
And what God is saying to Ezekiel is, I'm not confined to Jerusalem. I'm not confined to the temple that you were supposed to serve in. I'm the God that's right here with you in exile in Babylon. God was trying to share to Ezekiel that he had, he had gone with Ezekiel into captivity. Ezekiel doesn't have this vision in the temple. He doesn't have this vision in Jerusalem. He has this vision of God of all places in the Chabar Canal in Babylon, in a land far from his homeland, a land far from where God was supposedly present. God's throne moves with you, which means if you're commuting to a job you don't like, God's throne goes with you. If you're in a marriage that's falling apart, the power, the presence, the rule of God goes with you into that marriage. When you're at your wit's end, when you thought that you would be a certain place in this season of your life, God's throne is right in the midst of your disappointment. And your disappointment is an invitation to see a bigger vision of God. For Ezekiel, it was the fact that God moves his power, his reign, his authority extended into a place of captivity, into the midst of Ezekiel's disappointment. What is God trying to show you? What kind of construct is he trying to blow out of your mind of who he is? He's trying to enlarge your mind and who you think he is. He's a provider. He's a protector. He's a God who's right there in the midst of your disappointment. And he's willing to initially disappoint you to give you a bigger vision of himself. After seeing this vision, Ezekiel is commissioned by God to be a prophet. His occupation is changed from priest to prophet. And many of us would like this kind of commissioning. I mean, who wouldn't want God appearing or or talking to us and commissioning us and telling us our job assignment? But Ezekiel's call is not very glamorous. God breaks down the people that he's to minister to, the people he's going to prophesy to. He calls them a nation of rebels, impudent and stubborn. He gives an analogy of what this experience will be like for Ezekiel. He says, though briars and thorns are with you and you sit on scorpions, your calling, Ezekiel, is going to be as if you sat on a pile of scorpions. And then to really break it down, to make it very clear, Ezekiel chapter 3, 5 through 6, God says, You were not sent to a people of foreign speech and a hard language, but to the house of Israel, not to many people of foreign speech and a hard language whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I sent you to such, they would listen to you. What God is saying is, Ezekiel, if I sent you to the wicked nation of Babylon to minister to them, You're there, but if you began to prophesy to them, a people who you don't know their language, a people whose culture is far different than yours, the epitome of evil, if you were to minister to them, you'd have more success than the people I'm sending you to minister to. I'm sending you to minister to your own house, a nation of rebels, a people who are not going to listen to you. What would sustain a man to go on a mission to minister to a people who he's told at the outset are not going to listen to him. Ezekiel was not unfamiliar with disappointment. In fact, as a symbolic prophetic act, God allows his wife to die 
in order to communicate a message to the people. God tells Ezekiel to lay on his side for 390 days to symbolize the 390 years of rebellion that the people strayed from God. Now, I can think of a lot of terrible things or terrible ways to spend a year. And I can tell you, I can't think of anything worse than laying on my side for 390 days. That was Ezekiel's call. He was a man familiar with disappointment. What sustained him through that disappointment? What allowed him to keep going, to trust God, to walk in his calling? Ezekiel 3, 8, and 9. God is describing the stubbornness of the people. He says their, their foreheads will be hard. They'll be stubborn. They won't listen to you. But then he says, God says to Ezekiel, you are not, uh, he says, behold, I've made your face as hard as their faces and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery harder than flint have I made your forehead. Ezekiel, I'm going to make your head even harder than them. I'm going to make your stubbornness, your resoluteness, your determination to please me stronger than their determination to not listen to you. In fact, he said this phrase, like emery, harder than flint, I've made your forehead. That word emery, it comes from a Hebrew word, shamir, which is translated emery or diamond. And at that time, the hardest known substance, I know I'm giving you a geology lesson and some of you, your eyes are rolling back in the back of your head, but Ezekiel, God tells him, This substance is going to be harder than the very hardest substance you know, Flint. Here's my hypothesis. Ezekiel's seeing a vision of God. He's he's caught up in the throne room of God. And he sees these, remember, he sees these wheels like a gleaming of barrel. It's precious metal. He sees this expanse shining like an awe-inspiring crystal. He sees this throne like sapphire. He sees a human appearance like gleaming metal. He sees all of these precious metals and all of this imagery to describe God's power, how God is steadfast and enduring and never changing. And God says, as you've gazed upon my beauty, as you've gazed upon these things that are described as metals, I'm going to make your forehead like the very thing that you're gazing at. You're going to grow in the direction of your gaze you're going to become what you behold. Ezekiel was transformed by what he saw. His name actually means, Ezekiel, God hardens. And how many of us have become so soft because we've gazed at just about everything but God? We've gazed at what we've seen on the news. We've gazed at what we see in our family. We gaze at all the circumstances in the natural and at work and in relationships. We've gazed at everything but God. And now we're sitting here softened in our disappointment, discouraged and wondering where God is. He wants to open up our eyes and make our foreheads harder than flint, so we can stand through the disappointments of life. We can be sustained by him. Ezekiel's message, the book of Ezekiel, is is broken up into two parts. 
the first part, chapters 1 through 33, are pretty depressing. Ezekiel's given a message of lamentation, mourning, and woe. What distinguishes those three? I don't know. They all sound really bad to me. Ezekiel and Jeremiah prophesied to the people that this exile that they went into was not just some temporary thing. See, the people during that time, those who were considered the spiritual leaders, the elders and these prophets had declared, oh, this exile is just a temporary thing. God hasn't forgotten us. God isn't mad at us. We're going to be back in no time. Don't worry. This is just a speed bump on the road to our destination. And Jeremiah and Ezekiel say, no, it's going to get worse. There's going to be 70 years of exile. The city of of Jerusalem is going to be utterly destroyed. And while everyone was prophesying safety, hope, and happiness, Ezekiel is prophesying doom and gloom. And isn't this part of the prophetic call of the church? That as our culture is championing championing the redefinition of so-called marriage, when they're celebrating a little girl dressing as a little boy as an expression of freedom, when they espouse that my truth is the same as your truth as long as I believe it as sincerely as you believe yours. The church must rise up and cry foul. Suddenly, in Ezekiel chapter 31, Ezekiel's prophecies come true. Jerusalem and the temple are burned. And everybody, all these lying prophets, start singing his tomb. His tune. They start saying gloom and mourning and lamentation, and God has forgotten us. God is, is nowhere to be found. We've offended him. We've... And all of a sudden, Ezekiel flips the script. Ezekiel chapter 38, through the rest of the book, he's, he's singing a new tune. He's taken to a valley of dry bones. And this is the one part in Ezekiel that probably all of us know. He's taken to a dry valley of dry bones. And God speaks to him there and says, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. And then he commands Ezekiel to do something that would change the story of his nation, that would be a part of the story of redemption for the world. He says, son of man, prophesy. And Ezekiel, with a vision of God seared in his memory, reminded that the movable throne of God is right here with him in this valley, with a forehead that's been hardened, unmoved by the death, the dry bones he sees around him, determined because of what he's beheld in a vision of God. He prophesies. And he commands those dead bones to live. He prophesies the rest of the book, hope and restoration and a renewed covenant, a new Jerusalem and a new temple. While everybody is prophesying despair and hopelessness, Ezekiel, full of the spirit of God, is prophesying life and declaring in the sea of deadness, the dead bones, he's prophesying flesh on those bones, a new spirit and a new heart. When everyone saw death, he prophesied life. And when it seems there's no hope in your marriage, when it seems like that prodigal won't come home, 
when it seems like none of your coworkers are listening to the gospel you preach and the example that you're living. You stand up and with the vision of God that's been seared in your eyes, with your forehead that's as hard as flint, you prophesy life. This is the other side of being a prophetic people. This is our calling as a church, that when our country seems more divided than ever, when there seems to be school shootings happening daily, when the church as a whole seems more like the world than the church, we get up and we stand in the hope of God, in the hope of Jesus Christ, and we prophesy life. This is our call to be a prophetic people. Not just prophetic individuals, but a a prophetic people. What have I said? Your disappointment is an invitation to see more of God. The vision that God shows you in the midst of your disappointment is what will sustain you through the future hard times. When you see visions of God, In the midst of your disappointment, you can look at a dead marriage. You can look at a dead job environment. You can look at spiritually dead children. You can look at a spiritually dead nation, and you can prophesy life. Church, we are to be a prophetic people that in the midst of our disappointment, we see God. We ask him what he's saying. We ask him what he's revealing about himself. We get in his presence. We don't allow what's happening in our circumstances. We don't allow CNN or Fox News, what we read on the internet. We don't allow the, t- the seasons and the times and what people are saying to dictate who we are and what we do. We look to God to define us and to show us more of himself. Let's pray. If you're here today and you've been doing everything in this dry valley of bones, but prophesy. You've been commenting on how dead these bones are, how rotten they smell, but you haven't looked up and seen God. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm just talking about discouragement, disappointment. If that's you, I want you to take a moment to repent to repent and ask God to show him a vision of you, to enlarge your vision of his protection, of his providence, of his love, of his care, to show him, to show you a bigger vision of who he is. Perhaps some of you are here today and you find yourself in the midst of your disappointment You've experienced the presence of God. You've had peace, but you're believing for that circumstance to change. I want you just to begin to build up your faith. Just begin right now to ask the Holy Spirit to stir up faith inside of you right now. I want you to picture that disappointment. I want you to picture that dry valley and just begin to build up your faith right now in the Holy Spirit. If that's you, I want you to stand to your feet. We're gonna prophesy life 
over our valley of dry bones. We're going to prophesy life over our disappointment. I want you to take your eyes off that disappointment and lock in to God, his word, what he says about who he is, his promises, the word of God that you got, that perhaps you've forgotten. Some of you, you've forgotten the word that God has given you. Maybe it was three years ago. I just feel like by the spirit of God that there's somebody here who had a vision to paint and you've put away that dream. There's another person here who's been believing for their oldest son to come back home, and you've given up on that prayer. There's another person here. I don't know if it's a right ankle or a right wrist, but you've had chronic pain in one of those two areas. Maybe it's two people with both of those things. But right now, I want you to speak life in Jesus' name. Lord, we prophesy life right now in the name of Jesus. Lord, life over our finances. God, we prophesy life over our marriages. God, we prophesy life over our relationships, over our prodigal sons. God, we prophesy life over our dreams of businesses. God, we prophesy life over our workplace. God, the places that we've forgotten. God, we prophesy life over the places and the people that we've despised, that we've given up on. Lord, we prophesy life in the name of Jesus. God, enlarge our vision of who you are. God, give us again, remind us who you are, Lord. We believe you and the word that you've spoken. We believe in how sure you are, Jesus Christ, more sure than the circumstances around us in Jesus' name. Come on, 30 more seconds. I just believe there's a breakthrough for some of you here tonight. Some of you need to rise up in faith and prophesy over the, the, prophesy the word of God over your circumstances. Lord, we thank you that your word is sure. Your testimony is true. Jesus, you are the faithful witness. You are faithful and true. What you say comes to completion. And Lord, we receive tonight and we believe and we prophesy life. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated.